and welcome to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. We've got two great hours of radio lined up. I've got Leah Wilson coming up first with uh, Stand for Health Freedom, and then Dr. Henry Ely, also known as Dr. H, coming on. Really important information. to say we are in unprecedented times is, is a bit of an understatement. In many states, in, 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 well, in a couple of states, including Washington State and Oregon, there are now vaccine mandates for adults. I never thought we would see it, especially with these products. These products, according to the CDC, do not prevent infection or transmission according to their own numbers, which they admit are very low and don't represent the total numbers. There have been, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of breakthrough cases, um, hospitalizations, and I'll pull up the numbers uh, here a little bit um, and tell you the number of the deaths that they know of, of fully vaccinated people who caught COVID anyway. To have a mandate for a product a public health mandate for a product that cannot prevent transmission is so appalling. I, you know, it's, we, we all need to stand up and fight. And I tell you what, everybody is standing up to fight. So I encourage you um, to go join up, go find the medical freedom groups and informed choice groups in your area. Join up with everyone at your workplace. Um, you know, and in your profession to pool together. Here in Washington State, we've got some great groups that are forming. They are on fire. They are protesting. They're finding um, legal help. And Informed Choice Washington is doing what we can to try to connect the individuals reaching out to us and the groups that we hear of and the attorneys that we know are willing to help. Okay. So I encourage you to go to informedchoicewa.org and at our website, uh, look for the vaccine law tab on the menu. The first thing on that drop-down menu is COVID-19, COVID mandates help. It's a little bit messy there right now. We're gonna continue to update that, streamline it. That is gonna be the place you go, um, at least that we're gonna try to provide for you to try to help steer you to the help that you need so that we can overturn these unjust, unscientific, unethical mandates. Uh, Again, that's informedchoicewa.org, the vaccine law tab, and then COVID mandates help, okay? And states, if you're in another state, others are doing this as well. So just, you know, reach out to each other, find each other, and we can stop this. It's so important. All of this said, there is still SARS-CoV-2 and its variants going around, but there is no need to fear. Help is here. We need to look at the real data, the real numbers, It's highly transmissible, these new variants, but they're not proving to be leading to more hospitalizations or deaths. But we do need to get on top of the infections immediately, early treatments. It's a crime against humanity that the states and our federal government are not working hard to get everybody the information they need about 
early treatments. So I'm going to share with you right now um, the early treatments that are um, available. This um, is coming to you. This is the Frontline Critical Care Alliance. These are the founding physicians of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. For those of you just audio, I'm going to read their names. These are Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Umberto Muduri, Dr. Jose Iglesias, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Joe Verone, Dr. Elvind Vingevol, Dr. Scott Mitchell, Dr. Keith Berkowitz, Dr. Howard Cornfield, Dr. Fred Wagshul. All of these doctors are pulmonary, pulmonary care and critical care physicians, experts working in the field. And this is the information that they're providing to you. They convened to develop highly effective treatment protocols to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 and to improve the outcomes for patients ill with the disease. Today, they want you to know how to prevent COVID-19, even against the variants. This is the molecule of ivermectin, the medicine that can end the pandemic. Ivermectin was discovered and developed in 1975 in Japan by Dr. Satoshi Amura and Dr. William Campbell. In 2015, Drs. Amura and Campbell each received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for Ivermectin's discovery. They deserved it. The medicine has brought relief and saved the lives of millions across the globe for nearly 40 years. Ivermectin was first used in humans in 1987 for the treatment of parasitic diseases. It has eradicated pandemics of numerous diseases for four decades. Plus, for nearly 40 years, it has been given safely across the world nearly four billion times. Ivermectin is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It has been deemed to be one of the safest medicines known to mankind. But this workhorse of a drug is not yet finished. In the past eight months, numerous controlled clinical trials are reporting consistent, large improvements in COVID-19 patient outcomes when treated with ivermectin. People treated with ivermectin experience numerous clinical benefits. Fewer infections, reduced inflammatory markers, more rapid improvement, more rapid viral clearance, shorter hospitalization, and a reduction in mortality. As you can see, ivermectin has been very well studied across the world. In fact, the amount of scientific medical evidence is mountainous. As of July 16, 2021, 60 clinical studies, including 30 randomized controlled trials, have evaluated the role of ivermectin in the treatment or prevention of COVID-19. Here's how it works. Ivermectin inhibits the replication of many viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, influenza, and others. 
Ivermectin has potent anti-inflammatory properties with multiple mechanisms of action. Ivermectin diminishes viral load and protects against organ damage in animal models of SARS-CoV-2 infection. It prevents transmission of COVID-19 when taken either pre- or post-exposure. It hastens recovery and decreases hospitalization and mortality in patients with COVID-19. And it leads to far lower case fatality rates in regions with widespread use. Then, when ivermectin is used with the additional components in the FLCCC Alliance's iMask Plus protocol, it can work even better in preventing COVID-19. So here is what the FLCCC Critical Care Physician Team recommends. Just like you keep a first aid kit around the house, please start keeping a just-in-case COVID kit. Here is what the kit contains. Ivermectin, vitamin D3, vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, melatonin, and gargle or mouthwash. You can find our iMask Plus protocol plus all of our prevention and treatment protocols at flccc.net. We wish you a lifetime of good health. So I'm very grateful to the FLCCC and the brilliant doctors and their hardworking team. They formed a nonprofit. They are working globally to get the information out there and save lives. And I encourage you to go to their website, watch this, share the video. You can access it from the homepage of, at flccc.net. Go to the bottom left of the page, I believe is where it's located now. Click on it. It'll bring you somewhere where you can download it and share it and view it and everything. So um, with that, I don't want to run out of time. I got a great interview and I'm just going to go ahead here and, and bring on my interview with uh, Leah. Let me find this here. Share and off we go. Scientists, some of the legislators that are oh, stepping. Oops. Let me start that again for you. There we go. So welcome, Leah, to an Informed Life Radio. It's so good to have you back. Thank you, Bernadette. It's always great to speak with you and spend some time together. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just so encouraging to know that people like you um, and in every state in the United States exist that, you know, we're stepping up using whatever skills and experience we have, um, learning what we don't in order to, to make a change. I talked recently um, about individuals needing to be their own hero. You know, we, we look to all these wonderful people out there, some of our leaders, the brilliant doctors, the scientists, some of the legislators that are stepping up, getting vocal, taking action. And it's great. We need to follow them, but we can't rely on them to save us, right? Each and every one of us in our own worlds has to be our own hero. And that's going to mean making some tough choices. And it means we have to be fully informed and educated in order to be effective right? And to make those decisions and stand strong in our decisions. I think that's one of the hardest things right now 
is standing strong in your convictions when there's so much pressure to do the opposite. Yeah. One of the things I've really been focusing on when you're saying standing strong is encouraging people to identify what their line is, you know, what Mm. is the line that you will not cross? Because if we don't identify that in a time of what many people are calling war, which I myself would call war, you know, with the divisive nature, the government overreach, just the constant fear over the population. Um, if we don't identify that line in advance and it's a little late folks, so we really need to have that line identified, Mm -hmm. then will we be ready to hold it? And what is holding that line mean? What will that look like? Everyone's line can be different. It doesn't, there's no right or wrong when it comes to maybe um, your line is testing to get to work, or maybe it's sending your kids to school in a mask or being forced to vaccinate or contact tracing or whatever that line is. It can be different for everyone, but having it identified so you know when it's worth it and when it's time to take the hill. So I yeah. agree. The standing strong is of utmost importance right now. And I would go as far to say that not only being your own hero is what's going to be necessary, but it's the only way to stop the state tyranny, to to stop the tyrannical power that we're seeing right now will require individuals standing up, using their own voice. And it's been extremely empowering and inspiring to watch so many people be awakened to the power of their own voice during this season. It really is. And, and to find that silver lining, um, that is happening with COVID the, the, the awakening of individuals to their own, um, their own power, their own intuitions, their understanding of what freedom is and what it means to preserve it. It's, it's very exciting. I hate that anybody's been harmed in this crazy journey, but I firmly believe we will emerge somewhere much better than we were even pre COVID because you and I have been on this medical freedom informed consent journey for years prior to COVID. And it was difficult to get anybody to listen. And those who did listen um, were often afraid to speak up publicly. And that's how we ended up in this mess, because we had a lot of people who thought like us, but they didn't understand the need to stand up publicly and not be bullied, right? And we've been bullied into this this position, and people are waking up to the fact that I need to stand up. And I tell you, it is liberating. The first few times you stand up and you speak against the consensus, as they say, or, or speak your truth on a subject that has been deliberately politicized, deliberately made controversial. The first few times you do that, it is a little, your heart's going a little bit, and you're just a little nervous. But the more you do it, And the more you know about the facts and the more informed you are, the easier it gets and the more fulfilling it gets. And it becomes very liberating because you know that there's nothing out there that anybody says, no law they can pass, no order they can, you know, ordain that will harm you because you stand in your truth and you're going to act in your truth and you're going to join with others. You stand up, you look around, who else is standing up? Go shake their hand. You know, that people need to hear that, that no order they're going to pass is going to harm you because the fear is not only taking over people in regards to harm that the virus can do, but now harm that the separation of their community can do Mm -hmm. and separation from employment or from educational institutions. And that fear is so damaging. And to recognize that we as humans are creative enough 
to recreate anything that we have to. Yes. It might be wildly inconvenient and it might be an uphill battle. However, we are creative enough. We are courageous enough. We are connected enough to be able to um, divorce something that has us enslaved. And so recognizing they can't harm me. I am mm-hmm. safe. And it's our own choice to be safe. I was on an ATV in the woods and I'll admit to you, I don't love the thought of a bear. I just don't. I don't like coming up against bears in the wild. And so I'm with my sons on a ATV in the backwoods in the Rockies. And the whole time I'm thinking, please don't let me see a bear. Please don't let me see a bear. And then all of a sudden I had this thought that I replaced with, I am safe because I choose to be safe. You know, I will do whatever it takes to keep me and my kids safe. And we have to have that mentality of the mama bear that I didn't want to confront that (laughs) I'm safe because I choose to be safe. So And you empower yourself with enough information. Bears can be dangerous. So if you are in the woods, you know what you need to do to stay safe. And I think one thing is noise and that ATV is pretty dang noisy. And like, (laughs) and, and you know, likely the bears were running away from the sound. And, you know, there are other things that you can do if you stop to picnic sounds that you can have bells, some music playing, you know, there's bear spray. So, you know, when we encourage people to not be afraid, we don't mean go ignorant into the danger. We mean arm yourself. And in the case of COVID, learn all you can about the real data about the real infection, about your own risks, about the treatment options, about the preventative methods like the vitamin D. And you go, once you are empowered to enter that situation, you can completely let go of fear. It's wonderful. But the, the, the most dastardly part of what's happening isn't the propagation of fear of COVID. It's the propagation of fear of you're going to be humiliated. You're going to be targeted. You're going to be, um, you're going to be called an idiot, uh, an anti-vaxxer, an anti-masker. You're going to be called names. Your license might be on the line. Your business might be on the line. This is where the real fear is driving. There, most people that I talk to, when I ask them, why are you choosing to get vaccinated or why did you choose? It's never to protect myself from COVID. Never. You know, it's, it's always, well, I got tired of fighting them and I wanted to travel. Or I want to go to school and I don't want to get swabbed every week. It was always something. It had nothing to do with self-protection or even protection of others because they've at least heard that, that it's not preventing the spread. So, so yeah, and so um, it, it, this is also very important. Now, when you were last on, you talked about the fabulous program that Stand for Health Freedom set up called Put Kids First, Putting Kids First. And Informed Choice Washington um, has jumped on board with that. And so for Washington State, we have a webpage called Put Kids First. You can go to our menu tab and we give you some information that's, little, that's kind of state specific about what we're doing. And we link to your Stand for Health, uh, Put Kids First um, program as well. So people can see that. And we do encourage people to join your group, join Stand for Health Freedom. You can get all the notices, the emails, stay on top of the fabulous work you guys are doing. You are such a gift 
to the community because you're sort of a unifying voice for all of the state groups. We can all look to what you're doing because you work at this national level that we can all apply um, at the state level. And our own webpage, um, we're trying to keep updated as parents try things with school boards, try things in their community. We're trying to stay up to date with what's working, what's not, share that information. Um, we're all trying to find the best way forward to protect our kids. So can you give us an update on um, on your program? Yes, I so appreciate Informed Choice Washington's involvement, engagement. You know, this this is a grassroots effort, and that's exactly why we hold hands with state organizations is because you're closer to the people in your state and culturally relevant. So we're just thrilled to be partnering with you. Um, with the Kids First campaign, we have over 55,000 emails that have been sent to governors across the U.S. asking the governor to make sure that masking remains a decision that's made at the family level for the child and that we stop the isolation efforts in, within our schools, such as quarantining, social distancing, because it's harming the mental, emotional wellness and the educational um, advancement of our children. So we have had over 55,000 emails sent. It's still worth it. It's even more important now to continue to send those emails because of the waffling that we are seeing. We've mm -hmm. seen that five, you know, two steps forward, five steps back over the last four weeks, and it's time to show up again. And if you haven't already showed up to speak you know, directly to your governor and whatever means that you can through Twitter, through Facebook, through these email messages, it's time to do it for the first time. And if you already have, it's time to do it again, because mm -hmm. the message is just as relevant. It's still true. They're still relying on bad data. There's still only wobbly science, hardly any science that could justify masking our children or isolating our children. And they need to know that we are still firm in this and still firmly believe and have the courage to make sure that our kids are going to be in situations that benefit them. I don't know. Yes. Like yeah. when, when do we accept predatory laws for our children? We've been exactly. pushing back on predatory laws for decades now and to would now just relinquish that ground is insane yeah and the emergency use authorization for mask wearing by the general public um, was issued by the fda they claimed that the benefits of mask wearing outweighed any known or potential risks well they did not do their homework because it was very easy to find many many studies on mask wearing that would show that they're not only ineffective at, at blocking viruses that they are potential dangers when worn um, for any length of time. And of course, there were no studies as to how it may impact a child's development when you mask them for this length of time that's happening. Um, and so it's clear EUA needs to be pulled for mask wearing for children. You know, um, adults can fight their own battles, but we need to protect these children. And that's one of the things that parents need to recognize when they are doubting that my child should be masked, when they start to see the signs that say, wait, I can't allow this to continue to happen, to know that this is an EUA measure. You know, how many parents are even informed that the school yeah. is mandating something experimental upon our children? Mm -hmm. um, of course, we all have an idea and know that it has not been done before but that our regulatory agencies have deemed it an experiment 
is enlightening. And it's a huge part of what we're seeing is we're all being entered into not only an experiment for a brand new gene therapy for a biologic. However, we're being entered into an experiment on our civil rights. Yeah. What will we consent to? What will we allow to be squandered? Um, will we stand up for choice? And that brings me to the second part of our Kids First campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, many people click to act. You can text Kids First to 50457. So if you just go in your texting app and put in all one word, Kids First, to 50457 and get to the campaign. And it only takes a few seconds to click and send that message to your governor. However, the next step, taking your advocacy and growing that muscle on a different level is to download the step-by-step the -step guide to how to take a stand within your own community. You might already be doing this on some level. However, the guide can help you know how to organize with people, um, other people in your community, which is so key, is the organization of not only just one mom standing up, but five moms. It doesn't have to be 300 moms. It can be five, it can be 15 or 20. Um, and so having this community level organization is critical in getting done what we need to get done. That's what we're seeing is that when parents come together as a group, that they get more done. We're also seeing when parents bother to build a relationship with a friendly on the board, they're petitioning. So if you're going to be showing up to a school board meeting, building a relationship with either the superintendent or with one of the board members that's friendly to our cause in advance helps move that issue forward during these meetings. And you, we've seen where parents show up and public comment is blocked. Guess what happens? Their friendly pulls out all the correspondence they've received from the group and says, I'm going to read this tonight. You know, okay, you're going to block public comment then we'll read what they wanted to say, what they showed up to say anyway. So it pays to build those relationships. That's how, yeah. you know, human capital, the equity we have in our relationships is it pays dividends more than we can imagine. And it all goes back to using your voice, using the skills and gifts that God has given you to stand up for our kids. And we're seeing it make a huge difference. We've had over 2000 um, people access the materials for the step-by-step -step guide and the PowerPoint presentation. And we don't anticipate that a lot of people will use the entirety of the PowerPoint presentation, although you can, to educate your community, your school boards, your PTA. But even taking information from there and using the content to exercise your voice has been mm -hmm. key. Yeah. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And we're so grateful that you pulled all that information together. It's so helpful. One approach that I'm encouraging um, while we work from many different angles um, and while all of you out there also work from many different angles to attempt to stop these mask orders completely. So that again, it is personal choice, but that personal choice is based on full risk information about your choice. You know, that we're about choice. If you are fully informed, I honor your choice of putting on a mask or even masking your child. If you are fully informed, the problem is nobody's fully informed. So, but I came up with an idea that um, I think will be very helpful as we work toward there because school is opening in some places already and, you know, in August and then moving into September, of course, all of the mask orders in all the states that have them and all the requirements come with medical exemptions. They acknowledge that there are certain individuals and situations that lead um, an individual to not be able to safely wear a mask. 
the definition in these um, medical exemptions fits what is happening to children, to many children, to children with headaches, um, anxiety, depression, um, grades dropping because they can't focus, you know, um, and then we've got the physical injuries, we've got fiber um, getting into the lung injuries, bacterial infections, increased um, dental issues. The dentists are saying wearing a mask increases the, you know, it does something to the biome of the mouth and it's increasing cavities and dental issues. There's so many, so much harm that parents should be filing when they do their full research and they examine their own child's needs and their own experiences with mask wearing, they should file a medical exemption with the school as per their the law and order, and the school should accept those, right? Now, yeah. the wonderful um, Layla Sentner, who has the private school down in Florida, who was on our program a while ago, um, as a school owner, she recognized that the children were not doing well with masks. So she provided exemption forms to the parents and said, if you feel, if your child is not doing well, you fill this out, turn it in and I will honor it. And that's what I believe all of the schools should do. So go to your school district, go to your school boards, tell them you oppose masking, but you believe it should be choice and the medical exemptions coming from the parents themselves must be honored. I think that that's a way forward in a lot of communities as we um, fight. The parents who firmly believe they want to keep their child in the school that they're in, but they're not liking the mask situation. That's one reason for the medical exemption. Or if parents are in a spot where they feel like they cannot make a change at the time. Um, and 504 exemptions are those medical exemptions. So 504 accommodations. So okay. if, if a child needs a 504 plan because they have an individual need, and imagine that how many um, how many statutes are about individual needs, whether it's ADA, which 504 is under ADA, the American for Disabilities Act. We've talked about individual need, individual need, individual need, and now we have one size fits all medicine with mask mandates and vaccination mandates. I digress, but the point is just emailing your administrators, whether it's probably start with your principal, copy the superintendent or a vice principal and say, I'm requesting a 504 accommodation. My daughter, Mary, is experiencing daily headaches and instead she could wash her hands once an hour. You know, so it's like we are willing to work with you, but the mask isn't going to work for her. And so we need an accommodation. Let's come and they'll probably say, all right, come in and have a 504 meeting, have this meeting where you have to discuss what the child's needs are. And the needs can be simple. Don't be intimidated by that. Don't be intimidated by having to come in and advocate for your child. The facts stay the same. My child has daily headaches. Mm -hmm. It wasn't happening when we weren't masking. It wasn't happening over the summer when she wasn't masking. And, and now it does. So what can we do instead? And, and appropriate accommodations do not include keeping your child six feet away from all the other children. This would be establishing a new harm. Right. So reasonable would be to to wash your hands. Right. Unreasonable would be to do anything that makes that child um, be exposed to bullying, feeling different, being isolated. You know, children are very fragile. 
um, emotionally, developmentally, and, you know, their health in this matter and in, in how things are, are being put upon them has got to be weighed. It has weight. It has way more weight and risk than the any risk of, of that child acquiring COVID in the classroom. We know that the data is there that children are not driving transmission, they're not susceptible to infection, and they're not susceptible to severe infection, the few who do get it. And um, then we've got the suppression of the treatments, which is a whole other program. <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. good. So 504 is a tool. So you so there's the, the flat out medical exemption that is a possibility to be filed but there's also the 504 route so thank you for yeah for putting that forward and the 504 does come with a lot of built-in federal protection that might be considered thank you leah that's a, a good choice and on the kids first campaign page there are several experts that speak about the things that bernadette is referencing in terms of psychological harm emotional harm physical harm in having that backing in that muscle because i like to say moms should never abandon their gut instinct we go with our gut and then we check it with with facts and data right we go get the information because our gut is telling us something and um hearing those ex experts speak can be wildly helpful i had one mom reach out to me after watching dr jim Meehan speak about um the dental issues that you referenced and she said oh my goodness this makes sense now. I took my kids to the dentist this week. She has a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old that have never had cavities. And they they both had 10 plus cavities. That's astounding. Isn't that nuts? And she herself, she's a thinking woman that's a part of yeah. our health freedom movement. And she didn't put it together. She just thought, oh, my kids yeah. must be eating something different or not brushing their teeth or whatnot. And yeah. to see that the masking, yeah, that we're seeing a dramatic increase in the mm -hmm. decay within a child's mm -hmm. mouth. And we know that oral health matters. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the robust dentistry that we have in America today. Oh, oral health is so important. In fact, I had a woman, uh, oh, I forget who her name. I had a woman on um, in dentistry uh, more than a year ago, I think. And she explained it in a way I never heard it explained before about why gum disease is is so dangerous and we have to stay on top of it and oral health is important is because that is where you, you get a lot of access to unwanted bacteria and viruses sometimes into the body systemically if you've got issues going on in the mouth if you've got bleeding that's allowing access in it's it's your broken protective barriers mm -hmm. right you're, you're supposed to have the healthy teeth and gums that, so that you don't have these invasive issues and i'm like wow that makes so much sense yeah, yeah. Multiply there. One last thing I'll say about kids first is be encouraged. If you're up against a tough decision, there are so many families in your shoes. And we have seen the last report I saw was one and a half million kids exit public schools this year. Mm -hmm. So with the start of this school year, and one of the top three reasons that parents listed for exiting public schools was were mask mandates in the isolation measures, the quarantine measures. So there are lots of parents facing these decisions. They're making the hard decision, changing their educational environment. Um, Oregon, for example, is doing a mass unenrollment push. So they're saying, all right, they started it on August 5th and they're saying, all right, now is the time. Now is the time to unenroll your child because we're seeing statewide sweeping mandates for masks in schools and we're not gonna stand for it. 
So take a stand for that, find an alternative environment that works well for your child. There are some resources and websites on the Kids First campaign to help you start on that inquiry. And then your community members are going to be an amazing resource for that too. Find other moms that have homeschooled or pods or co-ops that are also on this path together. That's fantastic. And I do encourage people to look in their neighborhood, in their community for maybe those parents um, don't who don't have the resources or their ability to homeschool. You know, one parent households where the ch children are too young, they can't stay home. Um, or both incomes are needed and they, they can't coordinate. So help each other for whatever situation you're in to create learning environments that work for you and your neighbors, you know, your friends pull together because, you know, for, um, for a lot of people, it's not that big a deal. You already have a stay at home parent who, you know, has the um, ability to teach in our state, you, you have to have a certain amount of college and different things and to qualify to homeschool your kids. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, or you have to um, have a certain amount of the education overseen by a licensed um, teacher. And, you know, so all of these different things can play a role and we don't want anybody to feel trapped because they don't feel they can set up the right environment that they need for their child alternatively. So let's all reach out into our community and try to be really supportive of each other and not let, leave anyone behind who, um, who doesn't want to be in that environment, but are there because of coercion and because they don't feel they have a choice. Yes, those state standards or statutes shine a lot of light on things. I mean, I, I'm from a state where homeschooling is pretty easy. Now I could unenroll my child on any given day and just declare homeschooling. Um, but I had heard some of our West Coast friends reference, you have 10 days or 30 days to re-enroll your child somewhere to avoid educational neglect. I didn't realize that they were, the reason they were focused on that is because of the parameters. That's very interesting to be able to establish a proper educator within the home is well right. they don't they don't follow up yet right mm -hmm. it, it is pretty easy you you do need by the start of the school year to declare you're going to be homeschooling your child i i'm not sure if there are you know i apologize i don't know the details in washington state i've just always filed on time so you know it's like before the school year okay go turn it in it's like five minutes from my house to go, you know, sign the form. And I do qualify because I have a, a college degree. Um, I've never had anybody follow up on anything. There are records you're supposed to keep and all that. And they pretty much hands off. I don't, you know, unless we take charge, I don't anticipate that will stay this the same because in, in a lot of these states, everything about parenting is becoming highly invasive by the government. Mm -hmm. And they, they feel like, none of us are qualified to make decisions as parents that they can trust. Right. Well, and so, the government is so much more qualified. They have oh, such a yeah. track record with the kids they care for. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, you know, there's a lot of areas that we, we need to, we need to, we need to get active and pay attention to what they're doing in our legislature, where they're stripping away parental rights across the board and trying to be invasive, you know? Um, yeah. And once you form those community groups, like in the step-by-step -step reference guide of the Kids First campaign, those mm -hmm. groups still exist for a future mm -hmm. issue that might arise. You know, there's yeah. someone up in that group that's watching the school board agenda is just one person mm -hmm. is dedicated to that. And they can alert the group and is saying, oh, 
well, today they're discussing this and we might care about sex ed or we might care about um, a change in their sports teams with genders or, you know, a number of issues that parents might have an opinion on. And now mm -hmm. you've created the infrastructure to stay active. So I encourage yeah. you guys to download those materials, make sure you have the infrastructure within your county, within your school community to stay active and vigilant. Yeah, excellent advice. Um, so, you know, there's something else today, Leah, that I wanted us to talk about, very important. And it is a grand jury investigation that is being called for. Now, I talked to you and Dr. Henry Ely, who will be on um, the program in the next hour, um, you know, and let's let's revisit it could you remind us what's going on the information that was gathered together in a great paper and this call for a congressional investigation yes and dr ely can speak to the paper beautifully and what's in that and how they've really detailed out the wrongful conduct the misconduct by federal regulatory agencies as it relates to the handling of death certificates which is the nexus of data you know when we're mm -hmm. collecting numbers and counting numbers and seeing the impact of any infectious disease the death count is the basis right mm -hmm. that's where that's the starting point and the cdc has done things not uh, not abiding by federal regulations that were in place to switch how you count deaths for a single disease, um, which is COVID-19, obviously. So this paper covers that and it covers the PCR testing and the way that we're uh, identifying cases. It also covers you know, the vaccine um, manufacturing, the research development of that vaccine and things that people should know. So there's so much in there to illuminate what's actually going on. However, what this, call for a grand jury investigation is focused on is getting this fourth branch of government that we rarely take advantage of, which is the grand jury, engaged in a meaningful manner. Because we don't want the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak, with um, a federal a federal agency auditing the federal regulatory agency, which is the CDC, which at the most effective type of investigation would be the, um, you know, the more separate people so a group of people being brought in to come together to subpoena information and they can request information. They can call people in to testify under oath to do the proper investigation that we need to see happen to say, why did we see the death counts change? Why did we see PCR tests used when we had evidence that these tests are fraudulent, that the way that they are detecting viruses and amplifying the viruses could mean that there's just a fragment, not an infection and getting answers to these questions for the public. And some people might think, well, that ship has sailed. You know, we've moved past the faulty numbers and past this and past that, and we're in this whole new war now, constantly fighting, fighting something new like the Delta variant or the kids' mandates. However, history is being written, and what we accept as truth will be a generational truth. You know, it'll be passed on to our children, how we allow the government to operate or to usurp certain guidelines will go forward as a new standard. And so setting the record straight is extremely important. Getting this group of citizens together to form a grand jury and do a proper investigation into the conduct of the CDC is extremely important. We have over 55,000 signatures already on this um, request for investigation. The signatures allow us to present 
a more robust and compelling request for investigation. So anyone can go in and request the investigation, but then when you show them that the citizens are behind this, that the voters are behind this, you know, there is an elected position involved in this as it relates to the um, attorney generals, then we can say, look, the people know that this has to happen and we're watching and waiting for you to set this in motion. So please go to the website. You can text the word CDC data, so all one word, CDC data, D-A-T-A, -A, um, to 50457, and you'll get a link so that you can sign the petition to hold the CDC accountable for their conduct in response to this emergency. That's that's wonderful. I did sign early on and I encourage and I, I, I'll do a reminder to everybody uh, going forward to continue that. It's my understanding that there are legislators paying very close attention to this and that they're, um, you know, they know that the people are concerned and they are concerned. And they want this to happen. So if we get an avalanche of more voices, more signatures coming in to support this, you know, that is going to have a lot of weight, right? So can you explain to me, um, I've, of course, heard of a grand jury, I've heard of a congressional investigation, but the way you're explaining that now makes me realize I really don't understand those terms. Can you explain how Congress is involved, who exactly are we petitioning? And how is that grand jury then set up? Do you under, know the details yourself of that? Yeah, so it's the US attorney that would initiate the investigation or the um, construction of the grand jury. You know, So the US attorney would receive the information from us, say, look, here's our evidence, this merits an investigation, and then they are obligated by law to say, okay, we're going to call in a group of citizens to look into these issues. So and when you say citizens, does that mean that they're going to bring in some experts that are not related to the government? What do you mean by citizens? No, my understanding yeah. is it is voters that are brought in, and some of these are paid positions, obviously, because you could be coming in for months to perform this investigation, um, but it could be different across different districts, you know, how things are written out, but okay. it will literally be made up of lay people, common well, people, and then they can bring in people to interview them, to depose them, to get oh. more testimony. Um, and so it's almost like a jury, you know, we're all familiar with jury duty, but it's just a more formalized jury that would come in to make up these people. And I'm not the expert on it. I have to admit, I've leaned heavily on our grand jury experts to advise us on the path and what's most effective and how these grand juries has, have made a difference that it has mm -hmm. been an effective avenue with other issues in the U S um, we don't see it used very often. And I think that's why it's a little bit foreign to people. However, it is a fourth, you know, it's called the fourth branch of government for a reason because it's a measure of accountability when we see that something is going a direction that we don't want it to go, that we can call in a group of disinterested people to set the record straight. And then whatever they find in that grand jury investigation, they would submit that back to the court to see if um, a case should be initiated. Okay, 
Good. So the grand jury's task is to decide if there is um, a case, a, a, a criminal case or something to put yes. forward against yes. the CDC. Fantastic. Well, when when you've got corruption and capture, like you said, of of all the parties, you really need this independent look. I mean, this is what United States was built on. And, and I'm, I'm amazed every day at the foresight of our forefathers who set things up to have like even this grand jury, which serves if all else is going nuts and you need to empower the citizens once more to take control of that government they created. Yeah. I said on a on the show, I think last week that human beings have this problem with we create agencies to serve us and then they get really big and then they begin serving themselves and they forget all about us. <laughs> and true. and I just I I I kind of put out there, maybe we just need to accept this about ourselves and just start being more vigilant at paying attention, saying, uh-oh, that agency is no longer acting to serve what we set them up for. It's time to shake them up and change things and refresh them. We should or have re it all together. <laughs> or dismantle altogether, start something new, because there's there's a utility in, in having agencies that work to help you in different ways as a society, but we can't be slaves to them. And yeah, we should have dismantled and, and rebuilt some of our three-letter agencies a whole long time ago. And, and some things don't even need to be under their purview. We need to bring things back. Doctors need to be able to practice medicine, not be dictated from above. I've, I think I told a story here before um, about the time that my uh, my my pop years ago, what and all of us were kicked out of a hospital because we refused to accept the medication that they wanted him to take to keep him calm. He was having issues of what's called sundowning and getting somewhat violent. They were having to strap him to the bed. He had dementia and other issues that, you know, when in hospital settings, this happens, but the prescription they wanted to give him, I researched and it was being prescribed off label. The company who made it had been fined $10 million for prescribing it off-label for this very purpose, but because they had marketed it so well, it was already standard of care in the hospital, even though it was still an off-label purpose. So I researched the dangers of this. It, would, it could have caused paralysis, stroke, death. It was a dangerous drug. And I printed all of the research published peer review articles. And then I found another very old drug that had been highly researched, safely used, and not only Papa had a stroke, and not only would had been proven to be calming in these situations, but it heals brain, gray matter post-stroke. Mm. Okay. But it's a cheap drug. It's, you know, been out there forever. And um, so I gave this to his doctor at the hospital and said, we don't want him to have this here's what we'd like him to have. And he leafed through it and he said, this is excellent research. And I agree that this is a good product, but the other one is standard of care and I can't give the other one or I'll be in trouble. So if you don't give him the one we want, you're gonna have to leave the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we had to take Pop home in a state of full-on dementia where he was threatening violence. We had to put him in the car with my mama and drive him home. 
and then we medicated him ourselves. And he calmed down and he was fine. And then when he was better, he went and started doing the dishes because he's a sweetheart of a guy. You know, he just needed that transition and he was, you know, the dimension, all that. But anyway, I'm telling this story because our doctors are being directed by the pharmaceutical industry who have control of the insurance companies and the, and the medical systems. The, the, all of this needs to be taken apart and real healing and real choices. Doctors need to be empowered right now to reach for zinc, vitamin D, C in the hospital, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. They need to reach for what works and not what they're being dictated to do. Okay. Get off my soapbox here. Um, so yeah, so this grand jury is very exciting. Go ahead. That's so good. And I think that what we have to recognize is the um, population-based medicine is overwhelming right now, but the one-size-fits-all medicine is really a part of what we've accepted in America with standard of care. You know, yeah. a case comes in, you spit out A, B, and C without fail every time. doesn't matter. You know, individual need is rarely considered. We watch it over and over again with the family members that we advocate for in the hospitals. So this um, grand jury investigation, what we're saying when you sign this petition, the message that you are signing on to is to say that it is absolutely wrong to use bad data to shape public policy. You know, we've seen public policy result in increased suicides. We've seen public policy result in the closure of businesses um, and bankruptcies and you know, loss of property, loss of loved ones. And that is why it is wrong yeah. to base these policies on bad data. So add your signature to that petition. Let's get in the next um, two weeks, let's get this over a hundred thousand. You know, let's go from the 52, 55. I think it's, I said over 55 earlier, but we're over 52,000 signatures. Um, let's get that over a hundred thousand and encourage more United States um, attorneys to file these grand jury investigations. So we. And with that, we're going to stop. We're up against the top of the hour. That was Leah Wilson. So, yeah, good things going on. You've been listening to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have one more hour to go. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today.
Welcome back to an Informed Live Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. We had a great first hour with Leah Wilson, and this hour we've got Dr. Henry Ely, otherwise known as Dr. H, in the house. He's been on before. Say hey, Dr. H. What's up, Bernadette? So before we get to talking to you about some really important things, I'm going to play again something I played in the first hour because it is so very important. So I'm going to click my share button. I think you'll like this too, Dr. H. And here we go. Oh, sorry. It was at the end. Ah. Let me start it again. Sorry, folks. These are the founding physicians of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. I'm going to read you your names for the audio only here. We have Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Umberto Maduri, Dr. Jose Iglesias, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Joe Verone, Dr. Elvin Vingeval, Dr. Scott Mitchell, Dr. Keith Berkowitz, Dr. Howard Kornfeld, and Dr. Fred Wagshall. All of these are pulmonary care specialists, ICU specialists, critical care doctors who've been working throughout this pandemic, uh, reaching to the shelf for whatever will work, and they have developed protocols and continue to update their protocols to help prevent COVID and to treat COVID, and this is what they have to say. They convened to develop highly effective treatment protocols to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 and to improve the outcomes for patients ill with the disease. Today, they want you to know how to prevent COVID-19, even against the variants. This is the molecule of ivermectin, the medicine that can end the pandemic. Ivermectin was discovered and developed in 1975 in Japan by Dr. Satoshi Amura and Dr. William Campbell. In 2015, Drs. Amura and Campbell each received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for Ivermectin's discovery. They deserved it. The medicine has brought relief and saved the lives of millions across the globe for nearly 40 years. Ivermectin was first used in humans in 1987 for the treatment of parasitic diseases. It has eradicated pandemics of numerous diseases for four decades. Plus, for nearly 40 years, It has been given safely across the world nearly four billion times. Ivermectin is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It has been deemed to be one of the safest medicines known to mankind. But this workhorse of a drug is not yet finished. In the past eight months, numerous controlled clinical trials are reporting consistent, large improvements in COVID-19 patient outcomes when treated with ivermectin. People treated with ivermectin experience numerous clinical benefits. Fewer infections, reduced inflammatory markers, more rapid improvement, more rapid viral clearance, shorter hospitalization, and a reduction in mortality. 
As you can see, ivermectin has been very well studied across the world. In fact, the amount of scientific medical evidence is mountainous. As of July 16, 2021, 60 clinical studies, including 30 randomized controlled trials, have evaluated the role of ivermectin in the treatment or prevention of COVID-19. Here's how it works. Ivermectin inhibits the replication of many viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, influenza, and others. Ivermectin has potent anti-inflammatory properties with multiple mechanisms of action. Ivermectin diminishes viral load and protects against organ damage in animal models of SARS-CoV-2 infection. It prevents transmission of COVID-19 when taken either pre- or post-exposure. It hastens recovery and decreases hospitalization and mortality in patients with COVID-19 and it leads to far lower case fatality rates in regions with widespread use. Then, when ivermectin is used with the additional components in the FLCCC Alliance's iMask Plus protocol, it can work even better in preventing COVID-19. So here is what the FLCCC Critical Care Physician Team recommends. Just like you keep a first aid kit around the house, please start keeping a just-in-case COVID kit. Here is what the kit contains. Ivermectin, vitamin D3, vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, melatonin, and gargle or mouthwash. You can find our iMask Plus protocol plus all of our prevention and treatment protocols at flccc.net. We wish you a lifetime of good health. There you go. What do you think? <laughs> well, I love what they're doing there. I, I love that they're taking a stronger stand on mm -hmm. this and saying that, hey, yes, we have treatments. We can use that word. And uh, I, I really love that they are including, especially at the end, the um, attention to vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, quercetin, uh, they listed melatonin mm -hmm. uh, as well. All of these things have proven efficacious. Uh, I've reviewed some of the work of Dr. Sabine Haven. She just published a beautiful study um, a few, few weeks ago showing the role that bifidobacterium play in helping uh, recover, almost guarantee recovery in uh, COVID cases. And I think it's what Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Peter McCullough have been uh, screaming from the rooftops for a long time. And I think mm -hmm. I can throw my name in there too, yep. about prevention is a great strategy and uh, early treatment is essential. And I think one of the things I'm, I'm encouraging all doctors to do right now is to go to FLCCC and get themselves educated on ivermectin. It's amazing to me that some doctors still think that it, it's, it doesn't work, which, is, which blows my mind. Um, but I think what's really, really important for all doctors, for all of us, when um, we have a patient with a suspected COVID infection, of course, we want to get them tested. I would go with an antibody test or an antigen test, a blood test to be a little bit more accurate than the PCR, of course. 
But what I think what's really important is we have to be testing patients upon admission, upon even suspicion uh, for vitamin D levels. Because what we've seen in the literature and what we're seeing in clinical practice is when a person who has a vitamin D level below 55 nanograms per milliliter is ripe for not only an infection, but potentially long haul syndrome, hospitalization, and, and even worse outcomes. So our goal, our, one of our therapeutic goals, in my professional opinion, has to be making sure that our patients get their vitamin D levels up above 55 nanograms per milliliter. And then we have a very good chance, we give that patient a very good chance of minimizing severity of symptoms and, and accelerating recovery, especially in, in um, conjunction with the use of things like ivermectin uh, and some of the other nutraceuticals that they were referring to. So I think what they're doing is absolutely brave and brilliant, but I also think, Bernadette, it shouldn't be it brave. It should just be what we were doing from April 2020 forward, that we were posed with a problem and we all worked together and we came up with the best solutions and then gave them to the people who needed them. Exactly. And the fact that it takes courage to simply try to help people with, with these effective treatment protocols shows the corruption. Um, and, you know, I say it often is, that, you know, what is being revealed needs fixed, and we're going to emerge from this stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you if you could talk a bit about vitamin D, because I have heard that it's not just vitamin D supplementation that can get your levels up, that you know, you, not everybody absorbs what they take, mm -hmm. that it's not as simple as just take the D3 and your levels will go up because there are some people who need um, underlying issues maybe addressed so that that vitamin D can be used or could you, could you talk about that? Well, yeah, there's a lot of people who say that, you know, you need to take vitamin D with uh, like K2, vitamin K2 as well, that you need both of them for to optimize absorption. You know, um, that's, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. I've been teaching nutrition for 20 years. Uh, we, you, we look at it simply like this. Vitamin D is historically taught as a methodology, as a vitamin essential for, to help us absorb calcium. Vitamin K is essential for bone density. It helps put the calcium on the bone. Okay, so that's where K2 usually comes in. Now, maybe there's some new research that I haven't seen because, you know, our, our, we're all drinking out of a fire hose, you know, right now every day. But um, I don't know that K2 is essential. And, and if we are doing a really great job of helping to um, promote bifidobacterium in the, in the gut and the good probiotics in the gut, the body's going to make vitamin K as well. And then if we're eating good green leafy, uh, leafy green vegetables, of course, organic green leafy vegetables, we're getting K2. So there's, there's ways that you can get a therapeutic amount of K2 without necessarily needing to supplement it. Okay. But, but um, if I could just say uh, quickly, yeah. I, I think so, the concern that I have heard is that if you are supplementing supplementing vitamin D, you may be depleting your K2 for maybe these other issues, you know, for your bone, and then later on having bone issues accidentally because you were so heavily supplementing. But as you were saying, if you've got the healthy biome, and you're yeah. eating right, that may not happen. Is that what you're saying? I, I would challenge people on that assertion. Okay. Right okay, there. Good. I think, I think if we have, if we're, but this is the, this is the challenge in this country, not very many people have a healthy microbiome. And there are some people that even when they absorb vitamin D or 
um, or take vitamin D, maybe it's not being absorbed, that maybe it's not being activated. So one of the things that's still very key for people is to get, you know, the 15 minutes of sunlight, 20, 30 minutes of sunlight, depending on, on eye color. Um, for, you know, the, if you have the darker eyes, the longer you can be out in the sun without burning. We don't want anybody developing skin cancer trying to avoid COVID, obviously. Mm-hmm. So there's this balance. But um, I think a good rule of thumb for everybody, Bernadette, is vitamin D3. Um, I think uh, the thing that I know I can, I can't tell people what to do. And I want to be very clear on that. I, it is such a hostile environment right now that anything that is said can be misconstrued. So I'm telling everybody several things. Anything that I say is for educational purposes only. Make sure you discuss it with your primary care physician, your doctor, somebody you trust and who knows what they're talking about. Don't go to talk to somebody about vitamins who hasn't ever studied nutrition. All right. That's just a waste of time. But once you've established that you are going and talking with them and getting, you know, some advice, getting a conversation started, I think it's then important uh, for me to say, I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm sharing what I would do. So what I've been doing over the uh, last year, and it's worked great, has been taking 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3. I've been taking 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams of, of vitamin C. Uh, I've been taking uh, about 5,000 IUs of, of uh, vitamin A. I've been taking 30 milligrams of zinc. And something else that I've been doing that I'm learning is really significant, and I'm going to talk with uh, Dr. Corey and Dr. McCullough about this, is the role of liposomal glutathione in Mm. this, especially with the Delta variant. Okay, we're seeing clinically it really help with the respiratory, opening up the respiratory, uh, because there seems to be a thick plaque of of mucus that gets built up on people who are having really bad um, cases of severe cases of the the Delta variant um, COVID. So what we are doing is saying, okay, NAC, if you can get it, very helpful at breaking down, thinning out the mucus. But if you can't get the NAC, go ahead and get liposomal glutathione. It's something I've been taking for years. And I think it's one of the little secrets that I had kind of underappreciated, you know, about this whole thing. So liposomal glutathione, quercetin, there's all these little things. Mm -hmm. And and I think what I want to get into the audience's um, mind right here is there is no magic bullet for this. You know, there is no, okay, if I just do ivermectin, everything will be fine. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But there is no just ivermectin or just vitamin D or just vitamin C or just, it's all of it working together. Mm-hmm. It, and the best things that we can do right now, and I can say this, is to make sure that we have great nutrient density before we would even get exposed or get infected, because that's going to give you the best opportunity for a minimal experience with COVID and a rapid recovery. And then if you do get infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus or one of the variants, don't freak out, don't panic. Okay, if you have a pulse oximeter at home, check your O2 sat, your oxygen saturation levels. We want to keep them definitely above 92%, hopefully, and then hopefully even above 95%. But the key is to make sure that you aggressively do early treatment. So one of the things that I've been recommending to people and I and is our mobile IVs. So what there's all these companies, and you can you can Google them in your state. Um, but there's all these companies that will come to your house and give you a nutrient IV, like a Myers cocktail or a, a glutathione push. I would highly recommend, and again, this is just a recommendation that you talk with your doctor 
about. But I highly recommend if you do get sick and you're at home, get a mobile IV to come out. A a nurse will come out and administer an IV, get a Myers cocktail or some modification of it, get a glutathione push, and that'll get you started on on the pathway to recovery very quickly from what we've seen clinically thus far. There are things that you can do. It is not a death sentence by any stretch of the imagination. And the best thing you can do is keep your wits about you, keep your faith, and do not run around like you have your pants on fire because the news has told you to be scared. Exactly. And get prepared as the FLCCC Mm -hmm. little thing I showed. Be prepared in advance. Gather all these around. Find that supportive practitioner now, not when you're sick, so that you have these consultations and that person is there on your speed dial should you need them Mm -hmm. to guide you through anything um, and to up the care if you should need it. Being prepared takes away your fear and helps you, you know, be able to make rational, thoughtful decisions. This is really good. And I love that you point out, it's it's just not one pill and you're done. And, you know, we think of ourselves, think of ourselves more like a car. Mm-hmm. If you put gas in the car, will it go? Well, the engine might start, but if there's no oil in it, it's going to quickly stop. It's going to choke up. Will it drive? Well, if there's no air in the tires, you know, we are complex creatures. One thing is not going to do the job. We need to address our complexity, you know, with the nutrition and all these different angles. And that's one of the things I so admire about the FLCCC doctors and America's frontline doctors Mm -hmm. and Peter McCullough Mm -hmm. is they look at the full complexity of the human being. They look at the cornucopia of healing and they look at the natural shelf, the drug shelf. They look at all the shelves and they're not afraid to reach for the vitamin C and the steroids. You know, they're, they're not, they're not being discriminatory Mm -hmm. about what they, if it works, it works. You need it. It works. And I so admire that. Um, mm-hmm. Then I, I, if we could spend just a little bit of time, it's been a long time since I've talked about glutathione. I love glutathione. I was like, mm-hmm. I was just like such a champion for a while and that we got distracted by other craziness. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a minute about glutathione. Tell listeners what it is. Well, glutathione is a tripeptide, uh, meaning it's made of three amino acids, and it's something that our body manufactures. So one of the things a lot of people don't uh, think about, and and melatonin even falls into this category, is that our body actually makes antioxidants. Glutathione is one of the bodies, uh, one of the antioxidants that our body makes. Um, And in addition to things being antioxidants, what, what antioxidants do for the body by and large, whether we consume them from the plant kingdom or whether uh, our body is making them, is they stop damage before it starts. And that damage does include, in many cases, infectious microorganisms because the, antibi- the antioxidants are caustic to the microorganisms. So in this case, you have something like um, uh, something the SARS-CoV-2 virus, right? Now, I can't I can't say definitively that an astragalus root would, but has traditionally astragalus root has been excellent uh, in, in terms of antiviral for things like herpetic legions and stuff like that, because what these compounds do, whether we're talking about herbs, whether we're talking about plant-based um, antioxidants, we're talking about liposomal glutathione, is they inhibit the life cycle of the microorganism and reduce its ability to replicate. So they lower, in this case, theoretically, 
viral load. So when we start talking about a liposomal glutathione, essentially what we are doing is we are putting antioxidants in the bloodstream so that there is a preventative measure floating around in the bloodstream. So if we come in contact with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it does something very important. It lowers our susceptibility. And I think this is the medical concept that I like to get out to people listening. Just because you get exposed to something doesn't mean you're going to get sick. There's two factors that are involved in whether or not you get sick. Exposure is one of them, yes, obviously, but it's also susceptibility. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do to empower, and I shouldn't even say that, to show people how to tap into the power they already possess is to how to make yourself less susceptible to infection. And that's through nutrient density. That's why the work that me and my team have been doing in, the, in, our, in our published works to date have been showing how the CDC has known for decades that Americans are vastly deficient in key immunological nutrients. And it's that, um, I guess, barren wasteland, if you want to, for an analogy, is that creates a situation where most Americans are highly susceptible to infection. And then you introduce an infection that has never been seen before into the human population. And it just runs through us like wildfire because all of our defenses are down. So what we want to do is help people put their defenses up naturally get their body into a state of where it is ready to deal with any exposure and put them in a position where they can accelerate the recovery process because they're not very susceptible to begin with, which means their immune system is already primed and ready to take action. I think these are simple strategies, and I wonder why our governors keep relying on masking, number one, and um, pushing um, you know, experimental inoculations, and they haven't yet once issued any guidance on nutrition. It's, it just is mind boggling to me, especially when we have so many uh, studies demonstrating clear empirical evidence of, yeah. their, uh, of their successfulness. It really shows that we need to completely redo from the ground up these, you know, alphabet agencies, because they are now working, I'll say it, they're corporate captured, they're working to serve the drug industry, not serve the health of, of nations. Oh my um, God, or, Bernadette, or don't say that, don't say that, Shh, don't, don't no. ever say anything like that, don't no, ever tell the I truth. Just... Yeah. Hey, this show is, is uncensored. And I just admire uh, KKNW for allowing me to be on the air and speak truth. You know, they really stand by freedom of speech uh, at this station. And I thank them for that. Mm -hmm. um, you, you brought up some really great stuff here. So and I just was jotting down notes, so I don't forget um, to ask you. So there's two things I would like you to talk on if we could stay on this subject. One was biome building. Another one, I'd like you to talk about um, nebulizing because there's mm -hmm. a, a certain things I myself have done the nebulized hydrogen peroxide and it works great. Mm -hmm. So if you, and I know there's other things, iodine and different things, and even mm -hmm. the glutathione can mm -hmm. be nebulized. Do you want to talk about that? For sure. For sure. We, we've seen um, uh, Dr. Brownstein, I believe out of Michigan, uh, published last July a wonderful study showing the use of, of high dose nutrients. You know, one of the things that a lot of times I've, we've seen Bernadette people select the right nutrients, but they're just not taking enough of them. 
you know, and so you got to get into therapeutic range when you're doing something, especially if you have a confirmed infection and it doesn't matter whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or not, you just, you have to give your body enough of the nutrients so it can be effective with it. Cause when you're, when you are sick, your body is going to chew through nutrients like crazy um, so that it can fight, help fight the infection. It's searching for those nutrients to, uh, to help promote a lot of the enzymatic activity at the cellular level. Yeah. And let's go back to my car analogy. It's like you're driving up a mountain with your pedal to the floor, you're going to be burning up a lot of oil and gas. If you don't replace it and put some more uh, water in the radiator, hey, you ain't going to make it to the top. No, no, no. You're going to go tumbling right back down that hill. So, so Dr. Brownstein published this great study and it had he 107 out of 107 people that were in his study recovered, recovered within, I think it was three days on the Brownstein protocol, people can look this up yeah. online. I think, I think it was more like six, but it was, or four to six, as opposed to 10 to 12 that oh, some of the others were experiencing. I, I, I like could that. be misquoting it's been a while. <laughs> it. I, I could be misquoting it. We've, we've read so much. So forgive me if I am. Um, yeah. But I think the thing that really struck me about that protocol was um, he did use iodine, which I didn't consider before in therapy because um, iodine, we usually associate with, with thyroid issues, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thyroid deficiency. Um, I spoke with a, a great doctor, Dr. Ed Group, uh, about this, and he's seeing in his clinical practice fantastic results with iodine. So I, I've, you know, I've, I've been recommending that too as, a, as something like uh, on the level of quercetin. You know, if we're going to be talking about quercetin, we might as well mm-hmm. be talking about iodine too. Um, oh, and if, if I could just jump in there for a second, yeah. um, iodine gargle you know, mm-hmm. makeup, I'm not sure, uh, you know, water to how many drops, but then also a nasal flush mm-hmm. with a, a reduced, um, you have to make yourself a saline or buy saline to do the nasal flush. Um, but there's actually a study about iodine and how it's killing SARS-CoV-2 when you do the, you know, the nasal flush sort of thing. So yeah, the FLCCC is telling, they had a great Wednesday meeting every Every Wednesday, you go to a free Zoom meeting and they update you on things. And they're like, it's so easy. It'd be stupid not to do it. Mm -hmm. You go out in public, come home and gargle. It reduces viral load. Use your Listerine. You can do, Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things that will work well. Um, I need to find the list of all the different things. I'm a fan of I think, think, yeah, the Lugol solution. And I think what's so exciting is we're seeing there's so many options out there. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that Americans need to know is that there are a lot of options out there. Some obviously will be more effective than others, but when you put them together, they create a synergy. And Mm -hmm. that's where you start to optimize the impact of it. Um, I'm I'm always a fan of just regular old saltwater gargles as well. Um, Those work too? Uh, you can have a hydrogen peroxide gargle if you want, you know, yeah. those, those things are great. And uh, uh, Briotech or well, Briotech is a brand name. Mm-hmm. Um, hypochlorous acid. Is that the right? I haven't looked at the label in a I, while. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, uh, it, It's, um, it's something also that your body makes, like we make, um, hydrogen peroxide. We also make the hypochlorous acid if I'm remembering it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can buy it commercially. It's electrolyzed salt water. It's got two ingredients, salt and water. And I actually bought a home unit. It's about, I don't remember the price of it, but for the cost of it, it's, it's like 
two bottles of the more expensive commercial brand. And I just put in, I, I use um, like a distilled water or my reverse osmosis water. So it's as pure as can be. And you put in the salt and you turn it on eight minutes later, it smells a little bit like bleach because it's sort of in the bleach family, mm. but it's so safe. You can spritz it on your baby's face. You can put it in your eyes. You can, you can spritz it in your mouth. It is, it's very, very safe. It's something your body makes anyway. And it has been shown in the lab to, um, kill the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Well, so it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. <laughs> that, that, that's something I'm gonna have to definitely look up because, you know, I think the University of uh, Tel Aviv has put out some really interesting studies on UV light and, yeah. um, and, uh, and thyme, uh, thymol, which is, uh, the, one of the active, uh, biochemical ingredients in the herb thyme. Yeah. Um, that's being, in Listerine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that might be why Listerine is so effective, mm -hmm. um, as well. We've seen, I've read studies that show definitively that they've, uh, they've traced the replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and, uh, and viral load production to the salivary glands. So there was, mm -hmm. this would, this would make sense that yes, we want to make sure oral health is, is, um, is tended to as well. in this, we don't want to just think of this as purely a respiratory. I mean, I think one of the things that it's going to turn out ultimately is that we're going to see this as um, a systemic issue. Like it, it, and the system that it shows up in will be the system typically for the person that they had the um, weakest link, either genetically or because of the accumulation of environmental chemicals and, and things like that or combination. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if you always get sick and it shows up in your lungs, then this is where this infection is going to show up. If you always get sick and, and it starts showing up in fatigue and your heart and things like that, then cardiovascularly, then that's where it's going to show up. And if you're already dealing with multiple pre-existing health conditions, which we already know over 60 with pre-existing, you're in the high risk, it's, it, it's going to be really concerning, which is why to me, it's so much more important for us to focus on root cause. If we continue to try to hit this in a militaristic way, where it's mm -hmm. like, I'm going to keep bombarding it, bombarding it, bombarding it until it goes away, then we're neglecting what the root cause is. And the thing that I really would, would um, encourage your listeners to do their research on is the role of nutrient deficiencies in disease formation. Because if we know from the CDC, for instance, that 95% of Americans are deficient in vitamin D, minimal amounts of vitamin D, if we know that um, upwards of 65 to 95% of Americans are deficient in vitamin A, if we know that Americans are deficient in high percentages in these key immunological nutrients, vitamin C, zinc, then if we are not addressing the root cause, then all we're doing is palliative care and we're not putting a person in a position to not only withstand a potential infection and recover quickly, but to withstand future infections. And I think if we've learned anything over the last 18 months, it's that Americans starting out are in a terrible state of health. And that responsibility still falls to the CDC because they get billions of dollars of American taxpayer money every year to deal with nutrient deficiencies. And for the last 20 years plus, they have done nothing to help Americans deal with what my dad says, you have to stop the bandit at the door. Mm -hmm. And that's taking a preventative approach to the building of a solid health uh, and immune system. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, the only thing our federal government that I can think of that they have done with nutrients, they did 
um, they did poorly. And that's when they decided to supplement, to require supplementation of certain flowers with artificial folic acid. And it turns out that 60% of the public can't break down folic acid into mm -hmm. folate, you know, as mm -hmm. they need. And it can cause health issues to eat too much, take in too much of this folic acid. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they just, government has got to get out of you know, if they're not going to do it right, they need to get, get out of the way, out of, get out of the way, right? <laughs> Just get out yeah. of the way, you know, but I uh, will give them, I got I got to give one credit. We did find one study and this was out of the Oregon health authority, actually, yeah. uh, where a few years back, um, there was, um, failure to thrive reported in, uh, newborn infants. And so what they did was they made, they did a campaign of issuing guidance on vitamin D for expecting moms and breastfeeding wow. moms. And fantastic. it had a fantastic, it, it did so well that it got national coverage all across the country with that program. So you start seeing that you start going, okay, well, why did we, why are we going away from nutrition? Nutrition mm -hmm. is the foundation for all health. And what, and what we're seeing in our country is not a crisis of um, we don't have a treatment or whatnot. We're seeing is mm -hmm. it's a crisis of available nutrients in each American's body, right? And how do we know? Look at where people are eating from. Fast foods are de devoid of nutrients. Most Americans are not eating organic foods and not putting in additional supplements in, although I think that's shifted a little bit in the last 18 months for the better. Mm -hmm. But Bernadette, one of my great sadnesses when this started out, was that when I went into the store to stock up for some, because everybody's stocking up, right? Mm -hmm. I go into the store and everybody's pulling cans, goods off the shelf. Okay, that makes sense. We didn't know what we were in, in store for. But I went over and I went into the, uh, I went in over to the supplements section and vitamin C was fully in stock everywhere. Vitamin D fully in stock everywhere. And what was missing off the shelves? toilet paper. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? That just told me, I was like, we are in for a long haul on this yeah. because we have definitely taken the wrong turn at, at Albuquerque. Yeah. But you know, the good news is that that quickly changed. Mm -hmm. um, and pretty soon the online retailers were out of the high quality of the yep. nutrients, the supplements. And you had to like, oh, I can't believe I'm buying this brand, but it'll do until <laughs> they get back in stock with the other. But you know, a, a, a point I've made before is that nobody is born pharmaceutically deficient, right? You might be born nutritionally deficient, but nobody is pharmaceutically deficient mm -hmm. and they, but they want us to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And so why aren't we bringing back these, that the program to inform pregnant women about vitamin D, especially now, right. what do we have? We have the head of the CDC who belongs in prison. Bernadette has said it. Rochelle Walensky mm -hmm. said a few days ago on national television that they think that these experimental injections are safe for pregnant women and their infants, even though we can't possibly know that from yeah. the little bit of data well, and, and the red flags are there that that is not true. She's not telling them take vitamin D. She is telling them you need to go get these shots. And, and that is just criminal. I, I, I definitely don't agree with her opinion on that. I think there's, there's two, three things that the audience um, should be made aware of. And again, whenever we say something, go and do your own homework on this, right? You have to be a part of your own rescue on this one. Uh, first and foremost, pregnant women have never been a part of any clinical trials. So there's no, there's no clinical 
uh, trial basis for any of these claims to be made by especially somebody of that level of education and with that level of influence um, at the CDC. That's completely irresponsible and completely unethical. Yeah, what they're what they're looking at, I believe, I'm not sure what they've set up because they've done such unethical things. They may have actually begun to set up a a trial of pregnant women for COVID. I'll get back to the audience next week on that. But they're looking at women who got it anyway, despite the lack of evidence. You right. know, so this is this isn't a randomized control study. No. This is just who reported what. Right. You know, it it yeah, go ahead. Well, 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 let's talk about who reported what. As of uh, last week, and I know Varys just got updated today. I haven't had a chance to go in and, and look at the numbers, but as of uh, as of last week, at, uh, the J July thirtieth, one thousand three hundred eighteen miss spontaneous miscarriages. So it, yeah, one thousand three hundred eighty one today. Um, so, well, they reported through July thirtieth. I think we're still due for a new one on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. We know that we know that there is a ridiculously high number of spontaneous miscarriages, and we know that they are especially prominent. And this was published by the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was a, a paper authored by uh, Tom Shimabukuru from the CDC, uh, stating very clearly that the highest risk factors for a spontaneous abortion were in the first and second trimesters. So it, it at least give people guidance and, and be transparent with that. And then I, I think you, you go to that next step and you start looking at the birth defects. And because one of the questions is going to be, well, is there any congenital um, anomalies that are showing up? And the last time that I had checked um, uh, last Friday, I think it was 327 had been reported. Um, and there's, here's something we, we definitely need everybody to keep in mind. Um, Tom Renz uh, public, uh, uh, put a case uh, together with a whistleblower and it was um, uh, it was uh, logged in the U.S. District Court in Alabama. It's currently in process right now. But that whistleblower, under uh, under sworn testimony, states that it's at least a five-fold um, reduction in terms of the numbers uh, in Veras. So what they mean with that is that no matter what number you see in Veras, you need to multiply it by five to get an accurate depiction of of really what's going on. And he, I know uh, Tom just did another interview this week and he, he has more whistleblowers who've come forward. He's now up that to saying it's at least tenfold and that they, are, they can prove that it's at least a tenfold underreporting in the vaccine adverse events reporting system. So you're saying when they look at the real world data, they look like, like a, a medical data system of what is actually happening following vaccination, they're seeing five to 10 times more adverse reactions than what is being reported to VAERS. So the reality is way higher than the reports. Is that accurate? It, that's, that's what they are saying. Okay. Um, and what's, to me, what's really important about that is we, we, have to remember what basic benchmarks we've had historically for pulling experimental uh, therapies, products off the market in the, in the medical field. Mm -hmm. For the swine flu, it was 53 deaths were reported uh, associated with the swine flu and the entire program was shut down. Mm -hmm. We are now at over 12,000 reported deaths in, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in Veras. And if there is a five times underreporting, that means that there is likely 60,000. What Tom Renz is saying this week in, in an interview is that the whistleblower he has, is about to bring forward, it shows that it's over 100,000 deaths post-inoculation. 
folks, we cannot be a society that says that that's okay, where we so little have such a little value on human life and our fellow citizens' lives and the, the destruction that this has created, that, that we don't care about it. What about, and one of the stories that stuck with me all the time, I, I've always, I've talked about Simone Scott a lot, but another story that stuck with me was um, a, a trucker, uh, and he was the sole breadwinner for his family, wife, two children, and uh, got the experimental inoculation, died uh, within a week later. Um, there's over 4,600 deaths that have been reported to Veris within 48 hours post-inoculation, which is just unconscionable. But now the question becomes, who's taking care of that family? Who's taking care of those kids financially? He was the sole breadwinner. So now the government, they, the family can't sue the vaccine manufacturer. The family can't sue the state. The family can't sue the employer if the employer mandated. The family can't sue, you know, um, the government. So where's where are they going to be taken care of now? We're leaving people out in the cold. And I just read another story on the uh, on the children's uh, health defense. Um, it was published this week by a mom in Georgia. Same kind of situation. Her son. Um, her son contracted, uh, or excuse me, her son was inoculated, developed myocarditis. Of course, they didn't tell them or warn them of the severity of it or the potential for it. And when she tried to get seek some kind of compensation to help out with these tens of thousands of dollars that they've acquired now in medical bills, the answer was go kick rocks. We're, we're going to tell you to get this. We're going to tell you it's safe and effective. We're going to tell you that these kind of experiences are rare. And then when they happen, we're going to tell you you're on your own. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't sound like Americans to me. That doesn't sound mm -hmm. like the, the, what we are at our core. We're good people. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that that gets corrected. And that's, to me, yet another reason why these things should never be mandated. And I'll fight till the, I'll, I'll, I'll fight till the end on the mandates. That's not happening. Yeah, and the mandates are so absurd for so many reasons, so wrong, unethical, unscientific, but the very fact that the CDC is going on national news and actually admitting that these products do not prevent transmission, mm -hmm. on what grounds are they forcing individuals to get it? You know, public health was about, they're not supposed to tell you what you can do for your own individual health in a free nation, they honor individual, you know, the sanctity of the individual. But if mm -hmm. what your decision may harm others, there's that kind of gray area and area that our government enters into. Mm -hmm. When these products can't even prevent transmission, right. what the heck are they doing? I know they're going to go into the argument, but they, it may help lessen symptoms. And so you have to get it so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Well, no, that's not true either. You know, I mean, there's, there are other methods of making sure you don't overwhelm the hospital. And that's right. what we talked about in the beginning of the, the hour. Beginning. Right. And can I, can I make one point about this? Yeah. this somebody brought this to my attention and, and the uh, CDC just published a study last week, the Barnstable Massachusetts study, which shows that, um, which showed that 74% of all of the new infections in that study yes. had, had been fully vaccinated. vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't say was that the 26% that were technically unvaccinated included vaccinated people. So here's, here's this little tricky way they're doing, they're distinguishing this. Fully vaccinated means that you've gotten either both, both. of the Pfizer, mm -hmm. both of the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson and 
that it's been 14 days since the last inoculation. Mm -hmm. So if you are on day 13 and you've gotten the Johnson and Johnson, let's say single shot, you got the Johnson and Johnson, but you're on day 13 post inoculation and you contract COVID, you are counted as an unvaccinated person in their statistical reporting. That's completely Mm -hmm. unethical. And that's what's been going on for starters, and that's what is, is they're attempting to use to enable them to, to paint this as an unvaxxed versus vaxxed argument and a divide and conquer again, where you're yeah. the only reason you got sick person who trusted the vaccine manufacturer. It's not because the vaccine didn't work. It's not because of vaccine failure. It's because that dangerous, unheathen, dirty, unvaccinated, selfish American yeah decided that they didn't want to get if they would have gotten it too, this would have been over it's all on them it's not on us it's all on them blame them i'm sorry we got to go back to the source how did this start every piece of evidence shows that this was lab enhanced lab generated you want to blame somebody mr vaccinated person in this country you go blame the person that made the virus okay Mm -hmm. don't blame the person that is exercising their freedom we're supporting you on your freedom. And I do, I support every single person who wanted to go and get it and still wants to go and get it, whatever. It's your freedom. It's your right to decide. I'm a hundred percent in favor of you right now. And I'm never going to discriminate in any way against you. You have a right to do that. I don't, it's not right for me, but if it's right for you, I respect that. But Mm -hmm. that has to be a mutual two-way street. If I'm respecting you, you got to respect me too. I don't want that in my body. It's not going to my body. And if my tax dollars are just as good as your tax dollars, that means that I cannot be segregated from the society that I help to fund. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. And I want to share with you right now something that I, I think I've shown listeners before, but it's bears repeating. Um, before emergency use authorization was given at a Verbeck meeting, the FDA and CDC presented um, a slide 16, and I think it was CDC had table two. And on this, they listed all of these very severe adverse reactions of special interest that they called them that they anticipated they may see based on the clinical trials, based on the known science of the vaccine platforms and the vaccine ingredients. They, they made educated guesses of all of these things, Guillain-Barre, acute disseminated encephalitis, transverse myelitis, encephalitis, convulsion, stroke, narcolepsy, anaphylaxis, acute myocardial infarction, myocarditis and pericarditis, autoimmune disease, death, pregnancy and birth outcome, other acute demyelinating diseases, non-anaphylactic allergic reactions, thrombocytopenia, disseminated intravascular coagulation, venous thromboembolism, arthritis, Kawasaki disease, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, and vaccine-enhanced disease. And lo and behold, every blessed one of them has shown up in VAERS. Okay. Mm-hmm. They knew this in October of 2020, before mm-hmm. EUA was given. Did they spend a single dime ensuring all of this information got to those who administer vaccines to watch for it? Did they send these lists to the ERs and to all of the doctors to say, hey, if you have a recently vaccinated patient that has issues, here's what you might see based on our best guesses. And hey, here's a pool of money 
to help support these people. If they get this, which we expect they may get, here's what we can do. We've got this pool over here. We'll take care of them. And here's our best science. We're having doctors right now look into how we can help treat these patients. Mm -hmm. No, none of that. Not a penny was spent to help those they knew were going to be injured. So the, the, you go to your doctor, they're flabbergasted. They have no idea. Oh gosh, I don't think it's the vaccine. I never heard of that before. They don't know what to do to help you. Your, your um, bills mount up. It is absolutely criminal. That's another thing that absolutely will change, that COVID will change the, the absolute absurdity of how these um, Su supposed public health agencies engage in addressing um, these sort of issues. So I, I just had to get out there. Sorry no, that's no, that, that, no, that is a, that's <laughs> a great thing. What it shows is they knew. They knew. And, and if you knew, that's what makes it a crime. If you yeah. knew and you did nothing, that's wrong. Yeah. And when you do things that are wrong, that injure and kill innocent people, there has to be a reckoning for that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's what we are calling for here yes. is, is a reckoning. It's like, let's, we, we have, I'm not scared of any of this stuff, right? I was, I have never been scared of any of it, but I'm really not scared of it now. I'm more, I'm more upset than anything else that we've allowed this to go on for 18 months, that the same people who have supposedly been leading us through this for 18 months still have jobs. If I was this bad at my job, I'd be out of business at this point, you know, but mm -hmm. yet these people still get to go to collect paychecks from guess who American taxpayer yet again, so that they can do something that's very, very serious. They can mislead. They can manipulate the data and they can keep pertinent information that reduces, excuse me, not reduces that prevents the, the standards of informed consent being reached, because I'm going to tell you, What's amazing to me on that chart you just showed, Bernadette, was death. Mm -hmm. Death is one of the bullet points. Why that isn't the first bullet point is beyond me. But then you have to understand something. And this is, this is something that blew my mind when, when we started putting together the first um, vaccine education class at the Energetic Health Institute. Um, when we started putting together, I was like, I had to stop as a doctor and go, wait, when, when did I ever study you know, vaccines, like have like a specific, like we were in path, we were in, we were in pharmaceutical class and we studied vaccines and we read inserts, never. So I said, let me go and look at Harvard. Let me go and look at Stanford. Let me go and look at UCLA. Let me go and look at the top medical schools at their curricula and see, are they teaching it in there? Cause I was like, I'm a naturopathic doctor. Maybe it's just something that wasn't in our curricula, even though we had six semesters of, of pharmaceuticals. Right. And I went through all of their curricula and not one of those schools, these are the top schools in the world, not one of those schools was teaching on vaccinology. So what do we find out? The people that are going and graduating as medical practitioners are told one thing, they're safe and effective. And then they're not taught how to identify a uh, injury. They're not taught how to read the vaccine inserts, and they're certainly not taught how to deal with or treat with an adverse event, otherwise known as an injury. That's the other thing they do really creatively. They can manipulate the language to make it seem like it's a little bit less than what it is. Yeah. Call it what it is. It's not vaccine breakthrough. It's vaccine failure. Call mm -hmm. it what it is. It's not a vaccine adverse event. That just sounds a little bit 
uncomfortable. It's an injury. It's a vaccine injury. And what we have to do is get through this illusion of words that gets put out there and just call it what it is. Here's my favorite thing. Bill Maher did a great, great piece on this. Just tell it to me straight. Tell it to me straight. Tell me what it is. And then what's left is for me to decide whether I want to do it or not. And, and then the conversation is over and we're done because if the experimental inoculations are as effective as they claimed in December, 95% effective, that's what they said, to, as of today, they're 42% effective in the United States at best. And this is a report that the CDC is reviewing right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if that's the case, how did we get from December, 2020, 95% effectiveness to 42% effectiveness today because the data has been manipulated at every stage of the game. Mm -hmm. And that 95% number was fraudulent to begin with. Oh yeah, yeah, you called that. I mean, it was interim data on a, on a couple of hundred people in the study. And yeah, we could go on and on, but you know, we got about two more minutes. So I want you to get your last words on. You've been so inspiring today with these healing protocol suggestions, recommendations. We're telling people go out, um, get yourself a good practitioner that you respect, that's aligned with you right now. Mm -hmm. Get your, your care kit in place so you're good to go. Let go of fear. And what else should they do, Dr. Ely? You know, I, I think you said something there that's really important. Make sure you're working with a good doctor, a good nutritionist. How do you know? Because they let you decide. They present you information. They make themselves available to answer questions. When they don't know an answer, they don't try to snow you with a BS answer. They tell you, I don't know, but I'll see if I can find out. But at every single step of the game, they let you make the decision. And I think that's where we have to help our people in this country get back to. Mm -hmm. You have the power, everyone. Don't give away. My message, Bernadette, don't give away your power to people who don't deserve it. Tell Sorry. those people no. Tell them no. Very powerful words. Stand in truth and peace and love and say no when you need to say it. Say yes when you need to say it. Find others. Class Pams, rise up as one. We are going to get through this and be better than ever. Thank you, Dr. H. Thank you so much, Bernadette. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back next week. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. 
high above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.